So real quick, raise your hand if this is the first Deuteronomy class you've ever attended. So, everybody else has been in Deuteronomy class before? Mm-hmm. So Greg, just you? Have you been done for class? Excellent. Okay. No, I'm talking I'm not talking about just the book in general. I'm talking no, about this class. But I'm saying I've listened right to yours and his. Oh, okay. Okay. Well hopefully they're different. <laughs> but anyway. Some basic things about Deuteronomy before we walk through them. Number one, if you ever have trouble with the Old Testament, okay, and I know a lot of us do, we feel like that it's so far removed, there's some certain things they've got going on, it's just very strange, why is God working with them in in this way, and then all of a sudden when we get frustrated, we turn to Paul and we read Paul's letters, okay, that's what we usually do. Deuteronomy and Genesis, if you want to know the entire Old Testament, You learn what's going on in Genesis because it's the beginning of everything. It sets the foundation for everything. And then Deuteronomy, and here's the reason why. Everything that comes after Deuteronomy has got a connection in some way to what is said in Deuteronomy. The the information given by Moses, from God to Moses, to the people, the second uh, Exodus generation that came out of the wilderness wanderings, the ones who survived and were spared, and we're not falling into disobedience like their parents did. It is setting up everything that moves forward. Well, let me give you a for instance. A lot of times people don't want to read the prophets. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, all of those guys, Micah, Nahum, every once in a while we pull out Habakkuk or something like that. But a lot of times the reason why people don't want to read them is because they don't know, know how to associate it with the rest of the Bible. Well, yeah, they're talking about Israel. They're talking about Judah. They bring up Jerusalem. These people have obviously sinned. There's idolatry going on, and it's not good. God's not happy. That's usually the generals that we get from it. But as far as the judgments or pronouncements that are given against them, as far as the call for them to repent, where does all that stuff come from? It's not a baseless message. Everything that comes out of the prophets appealing to the people for repentance is found in the book of Deuteronomy. And the reason is, a word in Deuteronomy, the Greek word Deuteronomy, actually means second law is the idea. If in Hebrew you wanted to know what this book was called, these are the words which Moses spoke. That's the name of this book in Hebrew. They, they didn't give it particular names or anything. It's like the Psalms, whatever the first line was, that's how you knew what the psalm was. Well, the name of this book is in Hebrew. These are the words which Moses spoke. But as far as what the Greek understanding of it was, they gave it Deuteronomy, the second law. The second giving of the law is the idea. So any questions about that before we move forward? If you understand Genesis and you understand Deuteronomy, you can understand the rest of the... The Old Testament becomes so much easy, easily, easierly, easierly accessible. Kentucky word. Just mark it. It becomes so much more accessible to you. It's not elusive anymore. It becomes something that's more relatable, and you can start to pinpoint in a time of history because you know the concepts find their root in either Genesis and what God has said from the beginning or in the ordinances that He has given in Deuteronomy. Now, how many of you have heard the misconception that the law is a way to earn salvation in the Old Testament by keeping the law? Only two people heard it. Okay, you've heard that. I'm not saying do you believe it. I, I, I believe that you don't believe it. It is a common misconception in the church that the law is a means of earning salvation. Now, hypothetically speaking, if you could be a perfect person and totally keep God's law, you would have a righteousness of your own because God's law is how righteousness is measured. However, in a situation like this, you find that failure is pretty quick. So what is the law all about? Well, in order to place where we're at in the giving of the law, let's think timeline-wise for a second. 
Children of Israel are in bondage in Egypt, yes? yes? Okay. Moses comes in. Plagues happen. Pharaoh won't let him go. He hardens his heart. God gives him over to the hardness of his heart, and he hardens Pharaoh's heart. And in doing so, the children of Israel finally set free after all of these plagues. They plunder the Egyptians, and they come out. Now here's the question. When they came out of Egypt, was Israel a redeemed people? Okay? Prove it. You say no, prove it. You say yes, prove it. They were, they were delivered, they were saved. Okay, they were delivered, they were saved in a physical sense. I'm talking about the spiritual sense. I'm not saying were they regenerated, because the idea of regeneration in the Old Testament wasn't something that was taking place. That's actually a New Testament thing that went on and predominantly finds its way in the church. So we have to see this is the whole reason why I'm talking about we need to study dispensations. God works with certain people at certain times throughout history, and we need to understand what that is. So, yes, sir. The first time they were left alone, they built a calf. Okay. Worship an altar. Okay, so your works are contingent upon whether or not you're really saved. No. Okay, see, we wouldn't say that. Okay, but this is why it's important for us to sit down and think through this. What was the wording on the original question there? Yeah. The original question is, is whenever the children of Israel came out of Egypt, were they a redeemed people? And I'm talking spiritually speaking. Or were they an unredeemed people? I meant they were unredeemed because they fell right back into the idol. Okay. So you believe that because of their actions stemming from that, they, they proved themselves by their works to be unredeemed? My opinion. <laughs> That's okay. It's okay. That's what I want. That's what I, I mean. Let's feel free to talk. Well, uh, when I get down there, there's probably many, many of them, maybe not all, that had a measure of faith. Right. Okay. Because they did follow... Moses out of Egypt. Okay. So because they followed out. Not only that, but how, how many of the ones that, that followed out obviously went ahead and obeyed by spreading the blood of the lamb on, on, on their doorposts. Okay, so now we're so, getting so to so now you, so, so you got a, a, a measure of, of obedience and faith. Yes. Now, when I say the words type and antitype, does everybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. Type and antitype. Okay, let me give it to you real quick. The idea of a type is something that physically, historically happens, usually in the Old Testament. What an antitype is, is something that spiritually takes place in the New Testament that they have similarities in how it goes. So let me give you an example. Children of Israel in bondage in Egypt, yes? Yes. Before you knew Christ, were you in bondage to sin? Yes. Absolutely. So the children of Israel had blood from a lamb that was supplied for them. Okay? Have we had blood from Christ supplied for us. Yes. It's not our blood. It's been given to us freely. Okay? okay? The responsibility of the people was to apply the blood. Yes? yes? And what would happen if they applied? What would pass over? The death angel. The death angel would pass over them and spare them. Okay? So they have to apply the blood. How does the New Testament Christian apply the blood that's been freely supplied for them? Believe. Faith. Faith is the channel by which the blood of Christ is appropriated to you. So notice this Old Testament example that takes place, blood supplied for them. All you have to do is apply it. Death spares you. How do we apply it? We apply it by faith. The blood of Christ is applied to us, and we are now forgiven. So in that case, were they redeemed or unredeemed people when they came out of Egypt? They were redeemed. They were very redeemed. Now, here's something interesting to think about. Well, how does the relationship of works and their behavior and all that? Four times they grumble and complain against Moses from the time that they were set free from Egypt until they came to Mount Sinai. Okay? 
When that happened, the Lord does not discipline them at all. Why? Because they have had no instruction and training. They are brand new, like born newborn babies, and he is carrying them and protecting them throughout the wilderness. But when they come to Sinai, what happens? Does anybody remember Exodus 20? God spoke. The Ten Commandments happens, but notice it wasn't Moses saying, all right, everybody, God says, thus saith the Lord. He doesn't do that. God physically, audibly, loudly spoke. And if you remember, what was their response after he was done speaking? Don't let him speak to me again. Don't ever let him speak to me again. If he ever talks to me, I'm going to die. And in fact, one of the themes that you see in these beginning chapters of Deuteronomy when they're referring back to this moment is, what other nation has a God that has spoken like that to them and they lived after the fact? That's how... I don't know how to say it, but it's almost like lightning bolt stuff. It seemed to be to have God audibly speaking to them. It was an incredible paradigm shift for these people. So notice it scared them to death. But the fact is, is God was audibly leaving an impression on them to give them instructions. Here's how you're going to live your life. Now when they grumble and complain, now when they disobey, they are responsible and culpable for their actions. Now they've been trained. Now they know better. And not only do they know better, but they were taught in such a way that was meant to leave such an impression that they would not ever forget it. So that's a good way to look at it. Now why is that important for salvation? Because when we're all in bondage to sin, the blood for Jesus, all the work needed before God has been supplied for us by Christ. We believe in that. We hear the message and we respond to that. And his blood is now applied to us that liberates us from that bondage. But however, we're not culpable for things until we've received instruction. This is why discipleship is so important. It's because discipleship gives way to a greater, more abundant life in the here and now. So does everybody see how the type in the Old Testament gives way to the antitype, spiritually speaking, in the New Testament? Everybody see that? Okay, excellent. How many people are bored out of their mind? <laughs> bored to tears. Okay, just making sure. Mark that. Just kidding. All right, so now Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is set up in what is known in ancient Near Eastern texts is a suzerain-vassal treaty. And here's what this is. A suzerain is someone who is a high-ruling king. He has a lot of property, a lot of riches, a lot of resources, something like that. But they are considered a dominant and great king. Vassals in this treaty situation are considered not peons, not slaves, not nobodies. They are considered lesser kings is what it is. And so the way that this agreement goes is that the great king, Yahweh, is saying to the lesser kings, the people of Israel, if you will obey me, devote yourself to me, trust me, follow me, keep my instructions, then I will supply for you. You'll never get sick. You'll always have abundance. Your cattle will always be well fed. You will have glorious, abounding resources out of this world. You upkeep your end. I will keep upkeep my end. Now, what makes this different is this is commonly known as the Mosaic Covenant. And what makes the Mosaic Covenant is just M-O-S-I-A-C, the Mosaic Covenant, which makes that drastically different from the other covenants that are given in the Bible, like the Abrahamic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the New Covenant, those kind of things, is all the other covenants are unconditional. God alone is responsible for upholding those covenants that he made. But with the Mosaic Covenant, like we see here, God is responsible for his part, and Israel is responsible for their part. 
The law was never a means of earning salvation. However, the giving of the law to Israel was to teach them how to live in intimacy with the creator of the world. Okay? So the law for Israel has more to do, I guess we could say this, more to do with the idea of their growing in their relationship or their sanctification rather than it did something like justification. Not at all. So does that make sense to everybody and are there any questions? I want to make sure that we go, by the way, this is a slow class. We've already been two years into this for Sunday school time. We're only to chapter 12, okay? And the reason is, is because I'm trying to take these concepts and connect them to the Old Testament events that you can see unfold. So you say, oh yeah, this applies here. That's crazy. I want to make sure. Yes, Colleen, go for it. So the Messiah covenant, is that unconditional then? It's conditional. It's conditional. In fact, a good way to view it, some people call the Mosaic covenant the if-then covenant. If you will obey me, then I will protect you. If you will keep my commands, then I will provide for you. It's that kind of relationship. But as far as the covenant that God made with Abraham, that is, I'm going to do this. And Abraham just said, okay. <laughs> well, that's what it is. And even though Abraham sinned, even though he went to Egypt when he wasn't supposed to, even though he got with Hagar when he wasn't supposed to, all those types of things, God's promise is still faithful because it's based on his word, not on Abraham's performance. Okay, so we're good on that, yes? Okay, so let's break this down. Let me give it to you real quick, a very general outline. Chapters 1 through 4 is sermon number 1. And this is what we would be known as like recounting their past history kind of thing. Moses is going to talk about where they've been to set up where they need to go. Okay? Chapters 5 through 26 is sermon number 2. And it's broken into two parts. Chapters 5 through 11 are known as general stipulations. And then chapters 12 through 26 are known as specific stipulations. So if that helps you, let me say it again. Chapters 5 through 26 is sermon number 2. It's broken into two pieces. Chapter 5 through 11 is known as general stipulations. And that's where we find uh, the Ten Commandments are given once again, the Ten Words. Okay? Chapters 12 through 26 are known as the specific stipulations that are given. Chapters 27 through 30 are known as sermon number 3. And if you want to write next to sermon number 3, blessings and cursings. Blessings and cursings. There's a little bit of that that happens at the end of chapter 11 or chapter 10. I can't remember right now. We'll get to that. Uh, But blessings and cursings is the idea. And then chapters 31 through 34, we would just call closing events, wrapping up the book. In fact, in the very last chapter, Moses dies. So who wrote that down? That's a good point. Probably Joshua. It probably was. But you would be amazed at how many liberal, and they usually have a German tinge to them because Germans have been known in their theology to try to discredit the infallibility and the inerrancy of the Bible over and over again through centuries. So if you're German, I apologize to you. I'm not trying to say that about German people. It's not a racist comment. It's a comment about how they look at theology sometimes. They've done above and beyond to try to discredit the inerrancy of God's Word. And they'll say, well, obviously Moses didn't write any of Deuteronomy because Moses dies at the end. How can a dead Moses record his own death? And so that's the kind of logic they use in order to try to prove those points. Does everybody see how that's silly? That's what's known, real quick, methods that have been used for that, that and the idea that there's no way that Daniel could have been written at 700 
uh, uh, BC because the predictions, especially about Greece, are way too specific and spot on. So they say, no, he obviously wrote it after the time of Greece. That's what's known just for your mind whenever you're thinking about it. Wellhausian liberalism is what that's known as. And it's, it was... It was propagated mainly by a guy named Wellhausen, who pretty much wanted to say, no, 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 the Old Testament is based off of four base documents that are its source text, and those were all written at a later time because it was all reflecting back on history. Therefore, no prophecies are true. That's the whole idea. How can we discredit the Word of God? There's no evidence for four source texts and all this stuff. It's just trying to keep people from believing that God is actually speaking in His Word. So anytime you hear Wellhausian liberalism and somebody speaking for it, hang up the phone and go on and watch Phil Donahue. You're fine. Okay, so here's what we want to do. Deuteronomy means a second law. Chapter 1 deals with where they've been and where they've come from. Anytime that you see, like in verse 6, where it talks about Mount Horeb, H-O-R-E-B, it's talking about Mount Sinai. It's the exact same place. What's that? Not the place by Madison. That's not where the children of Israel were. If you can find a flame-scorched top of a mountain there, maybe we'll have an argument. But I seriously doubt that's it. Children of Israel wonder at Madison forever. <laughs> so that's probably still going on now. But anyway, no, this whole idea with Horeb is always Mount Sinai when they're talking about it. If you move on down through there, you find that a lot of geography is mentioned. Why is geography mentioned over and over again in Old Testament books? Because liars don't tell details. You can actually get a map, and I need to go through some of our maps and find them because I'd like to be able to post them up here on the board so we can go through. It was real helpful when we had the screen and we just had Mitch do it. Uh, he had a lot of maps in reserve that he could use, but we'll have to put them up here and look. But if you find the conquest of this land is very exact in detail of how they did it, okay? The first person that they came along to uh, was a guy named Sihon, okay? And he was the king of, uh, forgive me here. There's Sihon and there's Og of Bashan. Sihon, Sihon, Sihon. What's that? King of the Amorites. King of the Amorites is what it was. And if you can remember some of your geography, or if you want to look at the back of the Bible again, I'll try to have maps for next week we can put up here. I don't know if this is a magnetic board or not, but we'll get it. If you remember, they were coming up from Egypt under the, under the bottom here from the Negev, and they were coming up on this side, and you have the Dead Sea right here, the Jordan River that comes up, and the Sea of Galilee here, and all the rest of the Promised Land was considered here all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, okay? They're coming up on this edge of it, and they're going to conquer this way, and then move their campaign across to the west. Does that help? Excellent. This is fantastic. So the ancient Middle East, here's what we have. The children of Israel came over here. They believed that Mount Sinai is this destination. But if you notice right here, you have Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. So notice it's a small little section here that we're dealing with. They came up this direction, and they came up here, and they began conquering this way. Well, the Amorites were some of the first person they were doing. What they're told is that when they came upon Edom, which is down here, which is the descendants of Esau, you trace that back, Esau and Jacob, you're not to touch them. That's not your land. I gave that to them. You are to bypass and don't harass them in any way. Okay? So they came up on this direction. Uh, the second group that they came upon here, let me see. Um, Edom was number one, chapter two, verse four. Edom was the first group. Moab was the second group. That came from Genesis 19 as part of the offspring that came from Lot and his daughters, which is real creepy and weird, so don't think about that. But they went past Moab because, no, they're related to you, and that's Moab's land. You don't mess with them. Then if you travel over into chapter 2, 
Verse 19, the sons of Ammon. When you come to them, do not provoke them or harass them. Why? Because the Ammonites are the other offspring that came from Lot's situation with his daughters. They're part of your family. You don't mess with them. And so it's not until you come all the way down to... Where are they here? Uh, let's see here. Uh, verse 25. Uh, sorry, verse 24. Arise. Uh, chapter 2, verse 24. Arise, set out, and pass through the valley of Arnon. Look, I have given Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand. Begin to take possession. And if you remember from last year and the year before, what does take possession talk about? Inheritance. You are to inherit this part. This is yours for the taking. Take possession and contend with him in battle. So that's when the first happened. So it was a working its way up this edge of the Dead Sea. And when they came to the Amorites, they could then take possession of that whole idea. Would you mind to just set that to the side? I don't want to mess it up because it's not ours. So, yes, go for it. Um, these are the people that just left Egypt, correct? You're yes. Right? Yes. But not just left Egypt. Their, their fathers had disobeyed. They were told, you can go into the land. Remember, they sent in the spies. Well, we, everything looks great in the land, but there's giants there. We're not going to do it. And so they retreated, and they gave a bad report, and they led everybody astray. Then God judged them, and they fell in the wilderness, and their children are now going to inherit. Particular tribe? My, what I'm wondering is, everybody, but their relatives weren't there. No, I'm talking about relatives as in distant relatives, Esau and Jacob, that relationship, so yeah, but Edom. They, but they never must must not have went to Egypt. No, 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 no they didn't. That's what I'm saying. No. Only the 12 tribes were in Egypt. Oh, okay. But as far as these distant relatives, no, they had settled there and they'd actually become pagans okay. is what it was. They got away from respecting Yahweh and they become influenced by paganism. But yet he didn't want to disturb their land. No. And why is that? Why is that true? I, I don't have a clue. In fact, here's here's an incredible thing, and, and, and this is just some mind candy for you. If you want to dwell on this and think about this, one of the most profound, and I don't even remember where it's located. I think it's in Ezekiel or Isaiah. I have to find it. One of the most profound declarations that is ever made about the age of when the kingdom comes to be on earth in its physical, literal form when Jesus Christ is reigning. One of the most fantastic things about the kingdom is that Israel is not the only country that is represented in the kingdom. Assyria is recommended, which is crazy, because they're the ones who came over and took captive the northern kingdom after the time of Solomon and led them off because they, they'd been strayed from the Lord so quickly. But also Egypt. Egypt is a nation that is, that is recognized and esteemed highly by God in the coming future literal 1,000 ring kingdom. Now, the only way to explain that is grace, that God has grace on those people. And there's something about Jesus Christ ripping through the sky, not just the clouds. He actually takes the sky and rips it in half. So heaven is another dimension beyond what we can see. He actually rips that open and comes through, and whatever he establishes on, that, on the earth at that moment, I don't know if it brings some kind of repentance or something, but there are other nations who are major players in the coming kingdom. It's incredible, the mercy of God. Because all Egypt ever did was be full of idolatry and persecute his children. Right. And yet he still has mercy on them. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just all struck mind blown by that. I almost don't believe it except for the fact it's in God's word. You see what I'm saying? That's how amazing it is. Because I immediately went, well, don't you know what they did, God? Well, of course he does. He knows better than I do what they did. You know, But he still has mercy on them in some way. So that's just a... He knows what I did. Exactly. And I know what you did too. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, his mercy is just beyond understanding. So this idea of 
recounting and coming in and taking the land. Uh, again, the fathers before had failed. Israel has the chance now with the second generation to do the right thing, to trust God to do the right thing. So now they're not warriors, remember. They're, they're, they're house builders is what they are. They're doing brick and straw and drying it out and stacking on top of one another and forced labor and all that thing. They're not warriors. So they need God to fight for them and be the warrior God for them. So they're coming into this area with Sihon. I'm going to give him over to your hand. Okay, God, we're going to march forward. And they do. And what's amazing is, sorry, do you have the picture again? I need it again. Sorry. Let get something blown up here. Um, but here's what's amazing is, is Sihon's area is just right here, kind of generally speaking. And then they come up against Og of Bashan. Here's what's freaked out about Og. Og is a giant. The beginning of chapter 3, you start dealing with Og of Bashan. He is a giant in the respect of like Goliath was a giant. In fact, in our last class uh, that we had last year, uh, Catherine Fick was able to find a lot of files online of giants that they had found. And we're not talking about like just big bones that could be questionable somewhere. We found whole skeletons of people that were buried at that time, which goes to show the immediacy of the flood to be able to cover something up like that that quickly and preserve it. But full-on skeletons that are massive compared to what was going on at that time. So there were very much giants in the land. When you see Anak, we're going, to, we're, we're going to look a little bit at Anak here coming up. A-N-A-K. Anak was a giant. The Anakim were giants. Some people call them the Zuzim are giants. And the Rephaim are giants. And here's an interesting little tidbit to put in your mind real quick about whenever you see the Rephaim. Now, we're not talking about uh, um, uh, Seraphim and, and uh, what is it? Cherubim and Seraphim. We're not talking. They're not like a giant, or, sorry, an angel type thing. The Rephaim are people that were a breed of giants. And whenever Joshua goes into the land to conquer, did Joshua conquer all the land that God said? No. no, he didn't. He was actually disobedient and made a treaty with the people that he didn't check out first and they didn't consult the Lord. And so therefore they didn't conquer all the land that God said to conquer. And what's interesting is, is all the struggles that you see today in modern day Israel, the Golan Heights, all that area there, or all the area that the Rephaim, who were not wiped out by Joshua when he was supposed to come in and conquest that entire area, even to this day, you're still having trouble with the areas that were not taken care of by Joshua. That's a very interesting testimony of history. Why is there so much problem there? Uh, and, and I learned that from Chuck Missler. Uh, that's not a physical thing. That's a spiritual problem that's going on there. And it was the failure of Joshua to consult Yahweh and believe him and fulfill everything they've been called to do. It's very interesting. When they come along Og, and this is the little section right here of Sihon, with Og, they conquer all of this. Okay, Og owned pretty much everything. He was a giant, throwing his weight around, whatever. His bed was 13 feet long. They kept it as a trophy to show everybody that they had dominated him of what, of what, the, of what the Lord had done. But they end up conquering well north of the Sea of Galilee, what we understand is the Sea of Galilee at that time. So that part of the conquest was major. But here's the problem with it. It's all east, okay? The promised land is predominantly all west, Canaan what we would consider Palestine, where all these pagan groups uh, were, were at. And so they come in, they're able to conquer Og of Bashan, and then they have a difficulty. Well, we've got two and a half tribes that want to go ahead and settle in these areas, and they should because they're cleaned out, and we need to get some people set up here. However, you guys are to be soldiers. Leave your wives and your children here to set up shop and you continue on into the promised land to help conquer the rest of it. And because of that agreement, they were able to move forward effectively. That was a stipulation that was given. 
We move over into chapter 4, sorry, the end of chapter 3. We need to see this. It's very important. We've got about 15 minutes left. I want to make sure we cover these major points. Chapter 3, verse 20, uh, excuse me, um, verse 24, 23. We'll just keep backing up forever. Verse 23. Now this is Moses, and he's telling the, he's telling the children of Israel this, and I want you to see it. It's very important. I also pleaded with Yahweh at that time, saying, O Adonai Yahweh. Now remember, anytime you have capital L, lowercase o-r-d, that's Adonai, which means master. And then, all caps, G-O-D, becomes Yahweh. If it's capital G, lowercase o-d, it's Elohim. Now the, important, the, the names of God are very important for us to understand. If you have questions about that, read in the beginning of your Bible, because the translators will tell you, we use this name of God, and here's the way that we translated it. Okay, So they, they want you to be informed about it. But notice that Moses is humbling himself, and he calls God Master Yahweh. Yahweh means the self-existent one, the one who needs nothing else, or what we commonly know as I am. He needs nothing else to exist. Look what he says here. You have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there? And notice that's little g. Anytime we see little g God, it's directly related to a fallen angel or a demon that we would think of in this situation. What God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works as mighty as the axe is yours? Anybody? Anybody? No one. So answer that question. No one can do that. Don't be scared to write that in there. Verse 25, let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country, and Lebanon. Lebanon was the far west mountain range that was what we consider, we probably know as Tyre and Sidon at that time. But in other words, Moses began to see that as God was fighting for Israel and they're conquering this land, and remember, Moses didn't go with the 12 spies before. Everybody remember that? It was Caleb and Joshua who were the faithful out of that situation. Moses didn't go. But now that Moses is beginning to lead the campaign of the children up and he sees it all for himself, and he says, oh, this is way better than what I thought it was going to be. Now, think about this. When's the last time that you had a bad attitude about going to a restaurant to eat? But when you got there and you started to see what they had on the menu, you said, Woo! Right? It's all good, right? This is amazing. Now, would you feel bad if the manager came out and said, Sorry, you're not allowed to eat here? Isn't that a different situation? But you don't understand. I want to eat here. I have the money to eat here. I'm taking my sweetheart on a, on a date. This is embarrassing. We don't want this to happen. Why is Moses pleading with God about this land? Watch what happens. Verse 26, But the Lord, Yahweh, was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And Yahweh said to me, Enough! Speak to me no more of this matter. Why is Moses pleading with God about the land? And God says, I don't want to hear you say another word about this situation. Anybody remember? Wasn't that, his that was Moses' disobedience. The first time that the children of Israel came upon a rock in Exodus 17, I think it is, and they were thirsty and needed water, Moses was told, strike the rock and it will give forward water and everybody can drink to their fill. So he did that. The second time after Mount Sinai, Moses was angry with the people. He'd had enough. His patience was gone. And God said to him, if you want to give water to the people, speak to the rock and it will bring forth water. 
And if you remember, Moses made some sort of demeaning, snide comment to the people and he took his staff and he struck that rock instead of speaking to it as God told him to. In other words, he knew God's word, but he didn't do what it said. And at that moment, Moses was notified, you will not be entering the promised land. Now, why is this important? It's important because the last person of the wilderness journey to die before they can enter. They're not allowed access until Moses passes away. And that's why this book has to end with Moses' death. In fact, we're told at the very end, there was nothing wrong with Moses. His eyesight wasn't messed up. It's not like he couldn't run a 100-meter dash if he needed to. God just said, you're done. And he took him. Now, this is why we find great comfort in the fact that after his earthly life was over, later on in the Mount of Transfiguration, it's Elijah and Moses who appeared to Jesus at that moment. And Peter said, whoa, this is amazing. Um, there's, I think there was a lot more going on there than what we understand. Why? Because Moses wasn't allowed to come into the land. However, he ends up in the land in a spiritual form, in his, in his resurrected body, we would say, or, or whatever he would have before that. I don't know it's a resurrected body. But verse 27, go up to the top of Pisgah, and lift up your eyes to the west and north and south and east. Go up there and take a look at all the land. And see it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. So in other words, you can look at it, but you're not allowed to go there. Know that it's a reality for your people, but you're not permitted to cross over into that. So now notice the beginning of four one. He says, Now Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform, so that you may live and go in, and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God, Yahweh, your Elohim of your fathers is giving you. Why does he say that? Look at verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, but that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh, your Elohim, which I command you. Why is he saying that to the people? Because he's saying as someone who has failed before the Lord... And now that I'm seeing what God is doing and how exceedingly great it was beyond what my heart could even fathom, I want this so badly and I've already disqualified myself from entering in and taking of this with you. I'm not going to get this experience. So learn from my mistake. Follow God with all your heart. Don't add anything to his word. Do exactly what he has said so that you can receive the blessing that I'm not able to receive here. It's just somebody who is mourning essentially because of what they're losing out on. And just real quick, that is a good type of an antitype of what it is to live the Christian life. There's a lot of things we could miss out on in our experience with Jesus when eternity comes. When we come before the judgment seat of Christ, oh, I could have done this, but instead I, I did this instead. I, I sinned out of, uh, you know, out of convenience it caused sin rather than sucking it up and sticking through the hard time and really obeying the Lord as his word would call me to do. You'll miss out on some blessed experiences and, and treasures that he wants to lavish upon you because of that. It's, 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 a, it's an unfortunate situation to end up in, but it's a good type and antitype look here. So notice down in verse 12. Uh, sorry, verse 10. Remember the day you stood before Yahweh your Elohim at Horeb, Mount Sinai, when Yahweh said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me. Notice the reason why this took place, that they would fear, that they would reverence him, that they would have this humility before him all the days they live on earth and that they may teach their children. The reason why God has given his word and revealed it in two ways is because, number one, he's the truth teller and we are to fear him. Number two, so that our kids end up better than we did. Okay, That's the reason why the word of God was given, especially at this situation. Verse 13, or sorry, verse 12, very important. Then the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. 
Verse 13, so he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on the two tablets of stone. And why am I bringing your attention to this? Because what plagued Israel for the rest of their existence... And we could probably say just in, in ideology form now, they still have this problem is idolatry. They've always been prone to idolatry. And Moses wants to bring a distinction here of you're not to worship these tablets that the ten words were written on. You're not to make anything of heaven or earth or things under the earth, crawling creatures, bears, calves, golden calves, any of that stuff. You're not to do any of that stuff. You are to be concerned with his word and his word alone. That's, that's emphatically put there. So, over to chapter 5. So, I'm sorry, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 39. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that Yahweh, He is Elohim in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. And that's the reason why you should keep His rules, His statutes, His commandments, to have fellowship with Him because there's no one else like Him and He wants to have a relationship, an intimate fellowship experience with you all the time. Why do I bring that up? Because Deuteronomy is very much, it's not about these rigid laws necessarily to follow or a way of life to conduct themselves. It's about penetrating the heart, teaching the heart so that the heart will long to be in that type of fellowship with God. Chapter 5 is the giving of the ten words for the second time. There's some variation and we went through those things to take a look at them. Uh, we talked about chiastic structure. What is a chiasm? A chiasm is a literary device that biblical authors sometimes employ that will give you uh, common themes that will happen on either side. And, and literally, liter literarily speaking, they will work their way into a common main theme point that they want you to understand. We're, we're going to deal with more chiasms in Deuteronomy, so if you're not familiar with that and working those out, we will do that again. So there's the giving of the law. Uh, verse 22 of chapter 5, these words Yahweh spoke to all your assembly in the mountain in the midst of the fire from the cloud and the thick gloom with a great voice. And he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Why are they on two tablets? They're on two tablets so that Yahweh has a copy and Israel has a copy. They are both of the same exact information. And it's just like you would do a mortgage with the bank now about a property. They have a copy, you have a copy. So expectations are clear on both sides. When you get into chapter 6, you deal with what is called the Shema. The Shema means listen carefully or obey is what it means. And a lot of times in the Hebrew, when anytime you are told, especially in Proverbs or something like that, son, listen to my voice. It's talking about don't just have knowledge of what I'm talking about. Apply it to your life. When I tell my son you need to listen, I'm not just saying, you know, repeat back to me, regurgitate this fact, but don't apply it to what you're doing. I'm telling him you need to not only know this, but you need to obey this or follow this or apply this. It's the same idea here. So the Shema is considered a common saying amongst Israel. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Notice the mention of heart again. And with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands. They shall be frontlets on your foreheads and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, Israel, your entire way of life is to be consumed with God's word. And your children are to be consumed with God's Word. One of the greatest privileges I get is when we come home late at night. It's dark out. The stars are out. And my son will go, Daddy, look, the moon. And I will say, that's right. Did you know that in Genesis 1, God put the moon and the sun and the stars in the heavens? He's the one who created that. Now, 
That may seem silly to some people. That's a basic theology lesson of teaching him. This is who God is, and this is what God has done. And he can associate how God has made things amazing, beautiful, glorious. And what I'm teaching him is, is there is a creator that we're answerable to. Notice it's no different from the same philosophy. In fact, this philosophy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, would be good instruction for any home as far as what it is to disciple a family. It's excellent. And it is to be saturated. Why you know, why are you afraid you're going to just over-Christian them? They're just going to be so overdosed on Christianity. No, because it's true. Teach them the way they should go, and when they're older, what happens? They shall not depart. They shall not depart from it. So even though they get rebellious and crazy and are driving cars at 87 miles an hour, which I never do, they'll still come back to the Lord, the Lord at some point. I'm a liar. I'm going to mark that. There we go. Okay. So, moving on here. Uh, chapter 7 talks about the Lord bringing him in, bringing them in to the nations. They're going to come in, they're going to conquer, and the Lord is going to be the warrior God that fights for them. In fact, I would say, if you haven't read chapters 1 through 11, read through and just get familiar with it this week if you can divide it up over your week. What's interesting is, is there are only seven nations that are mentioned here, but there are ten nations that need to be conquered in this land that they're going into. What's, and what is chronicled later on in Joshua, or I'm sorry, in Ezra, Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, you find out that Joshua only conquered half of the inhabitants that were in the land. They were told to go in and wipe them all out, but he only conquered five out of ten. Now let me share with you this word. We'll, we'll go through real quick and, and see these, these other little points here real quick. The word is harem. It's spelled like harem. H-A-R-E-M. It's a very important word to know for Deuteronomy. Harem. And it's the idea of holy war. It's the idea of utter and complete destruction, wiping out and extinction of a civilization. And whenever the children of Israel called to go into this land, and you are to wipe out the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, you're to wipe them out. Even though they're greater nations than you, God will fight for you. You be obedient. He will fight through you. You will conquer these people. Why is that? If you read through Leviticus, you find out that there's some comparisons that are made between the actions and sins that the people in that land had committed and the holy nature of which Israel was to operate themselves. Now, you know this. You hang out with bad company. What happens to your character? It becomes corrupted. It becomes degraded. It becomes influenced. Exactly. And a lot of times it doesn't happen where, well, I'm just trying to win my lost friend to Christ. Cool. But we end up compromising a lot of the holiness we're called to and obedience in the process of doing that. And then we feel like worthless saints and throw our hands up. Notice that God is saying, get rid of this. They have done such sin that they have merited judgment. And you are going to be my instrument of judgment to execute these people. Because whatever revelation they had been given, they had purposely in their heart struck out to oppose the standards that God had called them to. And so God says you're to wipe them out. That's how we justify the idea of holy war. Chapter uh, 8 is all about Israel's heart coming into this. It's mentioned in chapter uh, in verses uh, 2, verses 5, verses 14, verses uh, 17. Uh, it's also mentioned in chapter 9, verses 4 and verses 5. The heart, the heart, the heart. The problem is always in sin. It's always the heart. Sin is always a heart issue. Moving into chapter 10 here, it says that they are to cut out the tablets of stone that he will make up from him. And the weird thing about chapter 10 is chronologically it's out of order. The reason is, is because this part of Deuteronomy is connected together due to thematic uh, 
uh, moving forward, not necessarily chronological moving forward. So, so, so the themes are together and unite themselves a little bit better. Uh, in uh, let's see here, verse eleven, or sorry, chapter eleven that we dealt with. Uh, probably the big thing I want you to see, uh, verses thirteen and sixteen, it deals with the heart again. They are warned not to allow themselves to be deceived. And all throughout chapter eleven, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. There are 13 mentions of the land that they are coming into. Let me share this last part with you before we finish up. Chapter 11, verses 18 through 20. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. Does that sound like the Shema we saw in, in chapter 6? Yes, it does. Verse 19. You shall teach them to your sons. Same thing. Talking to them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Again, your existence is to be consumed by this. And why is this important? Because from verses 13 to verse 21 was also a section of scripture that was included with chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. The Shema and this chapter, this section from chapter 11 were included together in something that was known as a mezuzah. And a mezuzah in a Jewish home on the inside doors of their house was a little box that would sit up right here on the right-hand side of the door. And any time that somebody would move from room to room, they would simply touch it like that. And why is that? Because inside, those scrolls with these passages were mentioned in there. And it was always to bring them to a reminder. We are to be consumed with the Lord's word always. I'm to be speaking of it, relating everything to him. All of it comes from him. I'm to teach my kids about this. And my home is to be saturated with the truth of God's word. And so that was just a reminder as everybody moved from house or from room to room in the house. They would simply touch where that little box was up at the top to bring that reminder. To constantly keep the Lord before them always. And that's the end of general stipulations for this section. Any thoughts or questions? I know that's a lot. If you want a, a little bit more breakdown, I think last time when we met for Sunday school again last year, I used about three or four Sundays to cover what we had hit so far. So if you want a little bit more breakdown, but I encourage you, read chapters 1 through 11 for yourself. Space it out over the next five or six days. And just kind of make some observations of what's going on so that when we hit chapter 12, and he wants to get very specific about the stipulations that Yahweh is asking for in this contract, this covenant with the people, we'll have a little bit more footing. Sound good? Anybody bored to tears? Okay, so I'll make sure. Let's pray together. God, thank you for our time together. Uh, may you be blessed by our reading. May you bless us because of our reading. Uh, that, Father, you would be honored as our lives seek to conform and our homes seek to conform to just the general calling that you have, that you are truth, there is none like you, that you alone are perfect. And, Father, we have such a great privilege to worship you, serve you, love you, embrace you. Father, thank you for calling us to be your own, and thank you for Jesus who makes it possible. It's in his name. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, everybody.